calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Here's a quick question for you. How did you sleep last night? If your battle for a good night's sleep feels relentless, I have the answer. It's a podcast called Sleep Wave with meditations and hypnosis created to help you fall asleep. My relaxation techniques will help you feel calm and ready for sleep with soft music that will help you fall asleep in minutes. Most listeners never hear the end of an episode. So search Sleep Wave on your favorite podcast app and find out why over a million people have fallen asleep to my voice. Hey everybody, welcome to Bitches on Comics. It is I, your host, Sarah Century, and with me is another host. Hello, it is I, Essie Fleenor. And I am in a weird-ass mood. Yeah. <laughs> I say my name. I'm not even on drugs. I'm going to say that right now. Um, maybe that's why I'm being so weird. And I am so pumped to be here. Obviously, always happy to be back on the pod. Back on. This is all I do. I don't know why I said it that way. But today, we have an exceptional guest a, a colleague, a friend, a hero. Oh my God, I can't believe it. Preeti Chibber. Woo! Hi, Woo! it's yeah. me. Hello, thank you for having me. <laughs> yeah. Preeti, where can people find you on social media and what is your whole fucking deal? Uh, people can find me everywhere. I am extremely online. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Tumblr, at runwithskizzers. That's S-K-I-Z-Z-E-R-S. I didn't know the internet was going to be this important. <laughs> and so when I signed up for my usernames that are now like my professional presences on the internet, I used my like undergrad AIM screen name because I didn't know. <laughs> And so now when people are trying to find me, which sometimes they do because I am an author, I'm a writer, a podcaster, they have to go to Run With Skizzers, which sounds not like a professional adult's name. They're like, heck yeah, I'm going to check out this 12-year-old's work. <laughs> exactly. I did get, I think it was last year, somebody emailed me to be like, <laughs> they wanted me to be on some like young writers something or the other. And I had to be like, I'm old. I can't. I, I'm not allowed to do this. Oh, wow. I it love was, that. And it wasn't like young, like, oh, like 25, under 25. It was like teen. It was, it was like young writers, like out of high school or something like that. And I was just like, that's really nice of you. 
However. However. I know it however. sounds like I have the interests of like a 12-year-old, but. <laughs> on a regular basis, I am like, if you describe me on paper, I would half sound like a 90-year-old, half sound like a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> yes. And that is a pretty good description of me as a person. I know. I feel like they're like, all you do is tweet about Spider-Man and video games. Well, what else is there? Come on. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so, okay, that's a great place to start. You are a diehard Spider-Man fan. Yes, I, I want to know where that came from. And, like, do you like all the Spider-People? Are you mostly a Peter Parker fan? What's up? I mean, I'm Peter Parker, ride or die. I love Miles. I love Gwen. I love Spider-People in general. But Peter is, I think, the one I identify with most because he's just such a fuck-up. And he tries so hard not to be. But he just is. And what I love is that even though he consistently makes mistakes and he consistently, you know, makes the wrong choice sometimes, he always still tries to be good because that's the most important thing, right? You you continue to do good despite all the hardship. And I just love that. I love that he is a disaster in his life because that I think we can all relate to. Like, that's my superhero. I'm like, oh, you like didn't pay your rent. You lost your job. You like were late for your date. But like, you still saved the day. But you're not going to win at life. It's like, I get that a lot. I remember when Into the Spider-Verse came out, you posted the um, Peter B. Parker with his like, sweatpants yep. and his beer belly. That's our Peter. He's the millennial <laughs> Peter Parker. Millennial Peter Parker. He is sad all the time. He In eats his feelings. <laughs> like, yes, that's the representation I've been waiting for. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> that's the representation you've been waiting for. <laughs> oh, shit. Sweatpants, Spider-Man. <laughs> Was, how did you get into Spider-Man? Was there, like, something specific that you remember? Because I remember first getting into Spider-Man through the comics, and then I, I remember the old 90s cartoon, which, like, has such a strange <laughs> hold on my life. But, um, yeah, how did you discover the character? Uh, I think when I was very little, I liked him. I had an older brother, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people kind of have this similar story where my older brother was super into this stuff. So I got into it when I was too young to know what it was, and then unfortunately, as I got a little bit older, it was like there was just a really big barrier to entry for women and especially women of color trying to get into that world. So I walked away from it outside of the like movies and the cartoons for a very long time. And then I came back to it kind of as an adult when I started writing for Book Riot and they were like, would you want to do a comics podcast? And I was like, yeah, I would. But let me do some homework. <laughs> and then I read everything in like two months. And was like, okay, yeah, this is amazing. Like, this is the world I want to be in. And Spider-Man was just kind of like, like when I was little, I liked him because he was funny and quippy. And like, I think he appeals to like younger kids a lot because he's so bright colored and all that stuff. And then when you're older, you kind of see the depth to the character. And so as those two parts came together really nicely when I got into comics as an adult. 
I think, too, I get to reread so much stuff just by having a Marvel Unlimited account and going yeah. through these just massive amounts of mm-hmm. comics. That was never available. So it's like as many barriers as there just generally are, you know, because not everybody lives in a town with a comic shop. Like, yep. there's just there's so many barriers to it. And having them available online, I think not only has opened the doors to so, so many people that were really left out of comics or even pushed out of comics, but I think that it's very awesome, even just just for me because it's like oh yeah there's like holes in my knowledge too and I've been reading these things since yeah. I was like a kid you know so it's been really nice I think and is that something where like when you talk about like and then I read everything where you <laughs> yeah it was Marvel Unlimited I read all of the Ultimate Spider-Man comics in like I, w- I want to say it was like two weeks like I went through everything and I finished it like I finished the big run before it like breaks into miles when I was in Vegas for a con- like working at a librarian convention and I remember sitting in my hotel room and just like ugly crying <laughs> because I was of how say, sad there is such a steep cliff when you hit the end on oh, those because so like brutal. you don't really know it's coming and then it's mm. like no no You're, it's so and this was years before they they you know retconned it and so I mean it's been a long time so I'm just gonna say it but like when Peter dies it's so brutal Mm-hmm. And I was, like, reading it on, like, my tablet, I think, at the time. And I was just like, this is so good, but I'm so sad. <laughs> and I'm so happy that Marvel Unlimited exists. <laughs> <laughs> I also really appreciate that some of the early Peter is just, or it's not super early. It's, like, right after he and MJ get married, mm-hmm. and he's just always trying to fuck <laughs> <laughs> it's <But> like, so <laughs> yeah that so whole era funny. oh my god it's so horny and it's so like I have a hard time with that era though because I'm like have you ever spoken to a woman like yeah no no they <laughs> no. the answer is no and it shows I was reading some like X-Men comic I don't even remember what comic it was but Jean Grey is wearing this like crop top and it was like lime green, I think. And I just remember being like, that's not how boobs work. <laughs> I got so mad. I had to close the app. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah, I understand. And Jean is a, sadly, that's perhaps, it would be difficult to identify which comic that yep. happened in because <laughs> it's happened in many. Um, this is kind of like a digression, but did either of you read the Spider Girl series that was about May Parker and Peter Parker is like a grumpy old dad in it, yes. and it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Just curious. I I love, I love that series. I haven't read yeah. it, and now I must. It's yeah, very it's really sweet. fun. <laughs> I love that. I love when they when they do like the showing some character you don't ever think about having children, like in the future having kids, and the kid mm-hmm. is just like poning their parent. Like when Thor's granddaughters, I think it is, are just like poning him through <laughs> Asgard. I'm just like dying laughing the whole time. Oh my God, me too. And I think I remember this Peter Parker having like a white streak in the front of his hair. I don't 100% know if I'm making that up or not, but if so, that's amazing. That um, sounds familiar, but <laughs> it also could have been fan art. Yeah, 100%. Or I just decided it, you know, like that's... <laughs> Sarah's like, you know how this character design could be improved? Canon. It's not canon. <laughs> and now I remember it only the way that I liked it. Listen, there are so few constants in oh, actual yeah. comics, so it's like anything goes. 
Yeah, that's something that I'm I'm interested in too because you did a Spider-Man story, right? And mm-hmm. it's like MCU, but it would be like out of continuity, right? Is that how it's considered? For Peter and Ned's? Mm-hmm. Peter and Ned's is MCU canon compliant. Mm-hmm. That was a really weird experience though because I... That movie came out and the book came out in July 2019. And I wrote that book in November 2018. Oh. And they, like, the way it worked was they had me come into the Marvel offices in New York. And I had, I sat in a conference room. They took all my stuff. Like, I couldn't have anything with me. I sat in a conference room with, like, four pieces of paper and a pen that they had provided me with. A laptop where they signed me into, like, a secure server. And I read a version of the script for the movie three times. I took as many notes as I could. Then they took my notes and they scanned them and redacted anything I was not allowed to know or have in the book and sent them back to me through another secure server. That is, (laughs) it's like you work for the FBI. (laughs) Yep. It was wild. I wasn't even allowed to take a picture in the building. Like I took one photo and the the like secretary there was like, you have to delete that. And I was like, what? And it was just like of my face with the Marvel logo behind me. Like that was it. And they were like, and no, then, you're not allowed. Then Tom Holland's out here just telling people the end of shit. I know, right? <laughs> like I didn't, the version of the script I read did not have the ending. And there was definitely stuff in there when I was reading it that I was like, this doesn't make sense. Like this, this does not make sense for the movie that I know that it will likely be and for where it's sitting in the timeline. So it was interesting. It was fun writing a book without knowing what the story was. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, for listeners who don't know, the, the full title is Peter and Ned's Ultimate Travel Journal. And it syncs up with the second movie, which is Far From Home, right? Mm-hmm. Not, a lot of home titles. So sometimes yes. I get confused. And this is where they are in Europe for school. And then Spider-Man, you know, is swinging around historical objects. It's very funny. So this is sort of meant to be the sort of travelogue that goes Mm -hmm. with it. This is something that Peter and Ned make together, which I think is really fun. I love the character of Ned. And I thought that the way you brought him in was like so funny in in the book. Mm -hmm. And I can't believe this process. That is so... Yeah, it was wild. I should try to find my notes because basically what I did was I did that and then I left the building and I went to like a Pret-a-Manger or something and was just like wrote like stream of consciousness everything I remembered into a Word document (laughs) because I was like, well, I don't know what they're going to send me back and I want to be able to write this book. So let me just write down what I can remember from what I read after reading the script. Then how was the editorial process from there? So, you you know, you come up with the draft and you, and you submit it. What was the feedback like? What was a little difficult was that because I'm such a big Spider-Man fan, I have a really strong idea of who Peter Parker is in my head about what I like about him, what version of Peter Parker I like best. And that's who I put into my initial manuscript. And we got notes from the studio back that were like, this Peter doesn't joke like this. Like this Peter doesn't quip in the same way. So there are these things in the book called Ned bad jokes. They're like little like asides that Ned gives. Those were all Peters in the initial manuscript. They were supposed to be PBJs, which are Peter bad jokes. And they were like, that's not, that's not who this Peter Parker is. And I had to kind of reconcile like MCU Peter is very different than my favorite Peter, who is like mid-20s, doesn't have a shit together, Peter, in the comics. And so that was a little interesting and, and being like, okay, I have to re- really pay attention 
to homecoming and look at what kind of person this Peter Parker is and bring that to the manuscript. So that's sort of the biggest thing. Outside of that, it was a really fast process. Like I read the script in November. My final revisions went back like December 27th or something. It was a very, very, very fast process. The like turnaround was tight. Wow, that is that is wild. That is so fast. Yeah, <laughs> it was the fastest. Like <laughs> it was so fast. <laughs> How involved were you with the layout? Because it's a very visual book, right? It's an, it's meant to be like, oh, this is them drawing, and, mm-hmm. and I think there's some maybe some pictures in it. Uh, yeah, it was illustrated by George McClements and Stefan Cardos. And basically how it worked when I was writing it is I would, and this is how I work with most illustrators, where I would write the text and then give notes for what I thought the page would look like and what I thought the illustrations should look like. And so like they were able to pull that. Like I think at one point I like took a panel of when Peter has his like six arms from the comics because it's one of my favorite weird moments of like Mm -hmm. Spider-Man. I love it too. Um, And I was like, draw this. (laughs) Put this on the page. And so that's kind of how that worked. It, it's very, it's disconnected in that I never had a conversation with the artist. It all went through my edit, like my editor at Disney, um, where she would take my notes, then funnel them to the art, to the artist so they could draw it and then bring it back to me to kind of look through it and see if it lined up with what I was thinking. That's such an interesting process. And so after that, what was the book that you did immediately after that? I think it would have been Avengers Assembly. The first Avengers Assembly book because, so I did that without a literary agent. The way the Spider-Man book happened was my buddy Brandon Snyder writes for Marvel. He does a lot of those like kind of similar IP projects. Um, IP is intellectual property, meaning the company will come up with the idea and come up with the characters and then they'll hire a writer, like work for hire a writer to come in and execute it. And he emailed me in like October of 2018 and was like, oh, hey, I put your name in for a Marvel, like, press opportunity. And I thought he meant, like, an interview, like, at Comic... Because Comic-Con was coming up, and I was freelancing for Sci-Fi Fangirls, as both of you did. And so I assumed he meant, like, some kind of Marvel Comics, like, interview that I would be doing. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then his editor at Disney emailed me. I was like, we need someone to write a Spider-Man book. And I, like, lost my goddamn mind. Like, <laughs> just was like, can I do this? I can... I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... So I did that whole process without an agent... And then in 2019, I quit my job and decided to write full-time. And like two months after that, I got an email from an editor at Scholastic who was like, we'd love for you to write this like Marvel series we're thinking about doing called Avengers Assembly. And the first book centers on Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan. And then I was like, okay, that's pretty cool. And I used that as a way to broker a conversation to get a literary agent so that I had someone who could like look at contracts and stuff and make sure I wasn't getting screwed because I don't know what I'm doing. And that sort of led to a bunch of these other IP projects. But so that first one after Spider-Man would have been Avengers Assembly number one, Orientation. Which is, again, like a really interesting model because the book is partially, you know, comic, partially mm-hmm. handwritten notes partially like um like AIM I'm so old what do we call that direct messages chat <laughs> oh god I'm like Chats. AIM <laughs> the kids would be like the what now <laughs> oh geez uh so that's a really interesting way that came together I'm curious how your process working with the artists was on that it's very similar actually in terms of 
you know, those books are very specific to what we call reluctant readers. So kids who maybe don't enjoy reading or haven't found the right book to pick up. And so it's using a wide range of storytelling avenues, whether it is like G chats or Instagram posts or comics or journal entries or whatever to keep the format interesting for someone who maybe doesn't have the attention span to focus on just straight prose. And so that was a conversation with the editor ahead of time to be like, he was like, we really need to pull in all these different kinds of ways of storytelling. And so the story has to make sense when it's told through these perspectives. And so again, what I did was write the manuscript and decide what tool I was using in each particular page and describing what that would look like on the page. And then that got sent to the artist, James Lancet, over in England, who would turn around and do the work. And then it would come back to me. So what grade level are Avengers Assembly? Is it middle grade? Uh, They're probably like 8 to 12. Yeah, it's middle grade. It's for like 8 to 12-year-olds. Is that the same as Peter and Ned's Ultimate Travel Journal? Yeah, Peter and Ned's would probably be about the same. It might go just a little bit older just by nature Mm -hmm. of the movie, um, but it definitely hits that sweet spot of like, you know, second to like sort of sixth, seventh grade. But then a Jedi, you will be, that's for younger children, right? Yeah, that's like first grade and lower, maybe second grade and lower. But that is another one that can go all ages just because it's Star Wars. Oh, I feel like they're all super all ages. Like, I enjoyed yeah, yeah, reading yeah. Peter and Ned's Ultimate Travel Journal. Like, this, is, <laughs> this is so fun, you know? <laughs> but yeah, target age is definitely kind of like second grade and below, I think, for a Jedi you will be. And how did that come about? So at this point, you have the literary agent, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so then, so how did you get into this awesome property? <laughs> mm-hmm. So this is, so I think I should say part of how the, all of this stuff happened is because I'm really loud about what I like. Like, I consistently am a big proponent of, like, love what you love, be vocal about what you love, and use your energy to talk about what you love. Like, people want to, if you like a thing that someone made, like, tell them you like it, you know? And so my kind of digital presence has been a very, like, big aspect of that that whole ethos where I'm just like, hey, I want to be a part of this, and I love this, and I want to do this. So I got a message from Jen Heddle, who's an editorial over at Lucasfilm Press. And she, this was summer 2019. She was like, hey, let's have a meeting at San Diego Comic-Con. And I was like, oh my God, yes, yes. (laughs) I I will say yes to whatever you want to do. And so I met with her at the Lucasfilm booth for like five seconds. And she was like, well, I'm interested in doing this anthology for the Clone Wars. And I have a colleague who's interested in doing some kind of picture book or those things you might be interested in doing. And I was like, yes, 100%. This is my email address. Like, please email me, whatever. And so she sent me a note about the Clone Wars anthology being like, who would you want to write? And I said, Anakin, immediately. And I I answered first, so I got to write Anakin, which I was very excited about. Uh, And then her (laughs) colleague, Caitlin Kennedy, emailed me and was like, I know you've never written a picture book before, but I think you could do it here is kind of what a sample script looks like. If, it, if it's something you think you could do, like let's have a conversation because they wanted to do something for the 40th anniversary of Empire Strikes Back. And I'm a huge Luke girl, like Luke's my favorite. So I was like, yes, I will do that because I. it just means I have to watch the training sequences a hundred times. And, you know, Luke Skywalker arms. It's not hard. <laughs> <laughs> This is a challenge I was made for. (laughs) 
That's incredible. You know, I'm really curious because the reason I asked about grade levels is it's not easy to write for different audiences who have different reading levels, who have different, you know, whatever it is going on. So even reluctant readers is different than than mm-hmm. working with, I don't know what we might call like mainstream readers. Uh, but I really, <laughs> whenever I'm around children, I realize that I use big words for no reason. <laughs> it's just how I am. And then I'll be like, oh, how do I define obfuscate? Well, <laughs> I I guess it means to withhold information Amazing. in an intentional way. My partner is like, bitch, they don't know what the fuck any of those words mean. <laughs> like, you can't talk to them like that. So I'm very impressed with people who can write at different levels. I'm curious, how did you learn how to do that? And like, how important was your editorial team in that? And Are there tricks you use now when you're switching for different levels? I have a huge benefit that I worked in publishing, in children's publishing specifically for like a decade. So I was reading very, very widely and I've worked in every age level of children's publishing. So from, you know, board books all the way up through young adult. For anyone who who wants to work in children's literature or write children's literature, my biggest recommendation is always to read as widely as you can because that is how you will get a feel for what language is appropriate for what audience. And so a lot of it is instinctual just based on my history of having read so much and so widely. Um, But of course, like for me, every single book is a collaboration. Like one person doesn't write the book. It's a conversation with your editorial. It's a conversation with your artist and your designer to make sure that everything on the page is centering and servicing the reader that you're hoping to attract with your book. And you know, with the picture book, for example, I'd never written a picture book. And so I was having kind of a little bit of trouble getting a handle on the pacing of like, what is the best way to break up the the actual text that I'm writing page by page? Because like, I can get a feel for that in a middle grade book. Picture book, a little, like, it's a little bit less so because it is such an economical story and you have such a short amount of like actual words to use. And my editor was like, here's a tip, like literally cut out 48 pages and cut out your text and break it up on the page and physically look at it so you can see what it looks like and how it reads in a book. And I had to do it. And it was like the greatest tip I got because it helped me to understand like, how would a parent turn the page when they're reading this to their kid? What is the most exciting point at which to turn the page, et cetera? And so it's things like that, that you learn by doing and you learn by talking to the people who know that world so well. There's so much wisdom in there and what you just said that I think is really important for writers. And and one is like read deeply mm-hmm. in whatever, for whatever audience you're trying to reach. Like this is a, a different example, but I think about it all the time where people are like, I want to write a romance, but I'm going to make it different. There's oh. not going to be a happily ever after. And it's like, no, that's Ew. not a romance. And it's not a romance novel. You're going to piss off romance readers. Don't do that. You want to you want to respect your readers and meet mm-hmm. them where their expectations lie. And so that's part of what I heard and what you were saying. And then also like these these creative tips about look at it like it will be looked at even when you don't have those images. I think that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very helpful to just consistently because I think there is this and th- this is a valid perspective on, on in terms of creating art is like when you're an artist, when you're an author, you make movies, like whatever it is, there are people who are like, this is my art. I'm doing it for me. I'm doing it for me to get onto the screen. But there is another 
equally valid perspective of like, I am doing this for the people that I'm hoping will enjoy the work that I am putting out. And they're just like two different schools of thought, I think. And for me, the latter is much more exciting than the former. Hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. All of this is like making me think a lot, actually. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And I'm I'm getting like all of this extra wisdom that, yeah, I guess I, maybe I wouldn't have thought about before. So this interview is very fun. <laughs> I want to talk about Zatanna, though, because I love that character. And I have always loved that character. What an incredible character. Has been around since like the 60s, you know, so much history. Uh, Had these really great appearances on some animated series. But for the most part is a character who I feel like is very kind of untapped. So every time I see somebody write a Zatanna story where I'm like, oh, you totally get what's fun about Zatanna then I'm always super impressed. So I was curious, kind of like how we talked with Spider-Man, how did you get into this character? And yeah, how did all of this come about? It's funny, like I'm actually not very well versed in DC Comics at all. I mean, part of it, I think, is that they took such a long time to create somewhere that you could access their comics easily, like the Marvel Unlimited app. Like DC took forever to come out with DC Universe and then it didn't have everything. And like, Mm -hmm. it it just took them a really long time to get their shit together, I think. So what I know for DC is much more on the animated film side because I really loved all the animated series and I loved the movies and and all of that. So that was kind of my relationship to Zatanna and most of DC, honestly. And... It definitely started when I was much older because when I was little, my brother was into like, you know, I can remember reading the Death of Superman comic when I was like nine and not Mm -hmm. understanding anything but reading it (laughs) anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I got an email from Michael McAllister over at DC back in like April of this year being like, hey, do you have time? Would you be interested in writing this like one shot comic? It's under a truth and justice line. It could be any character. And I was like, what? Yes. Like, I I benefit greatly from having come up, I think, just on the cusp of when social media was being recognized as a valid place to find experts. I think I joined Twitter in like 2008. And I remember fighting with my bosses. This is related, I promise. But I, I remember fighting with my bosses in publishing being like, we should be taking advantage of the space and have a professional presence there as our brand. Like we should be here because that's where our audience is. But because I was there so early, I was in a position where I could grow my audience there in a big way. And it put me in the position of having access to these opportunities in addition to like me, like being in New York and being able to like go to things and meet people in person and maintain those connections in a very authentic way. And so this DC thing definitely came about because this guy, Michael, sent me a message because he was like, I read your story in the Clone Wars anthology, and I think you would be a great fit for this comic series we're doing, and we'd love to work with you. And so I got to write back and be like, here's a list of characters that I would love to write. Obviously, Nightwing was at the top and they were like, no, you're you're not writing Nightwing. But the one under that was Zatanna. And they were like, we would love for you to write Zatanna. Mm, Second choice, but still a good choice. Still a good choice. (laughs) Listen, I can't help it. My heart bleeds for like cocky, broken boys. I can't help it. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that you describe him this way, too, because I feel like people generally are just like Dick Grayson, like the super nice guy. And I'm like, listen, no. I read those 80s New Teen Titans <laughs> yep. comics just like all the rest of us did. And I read I know. all the Nightwing. Like, I know exactly <laughs> who that man is. <laughs> Very moody. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, I look forward to the day whenever I know, right? <laughs> DC relents and allows this Nightwing comic to happen because I think a lot of people would enjoy it. Um, <laughs> but I'm also glad that you got to write Zatanna because I think that, yeah, like I said, she's one of those characters where it's like her aesthetic is so good. And I feel like people sometimes really struggle to find backing stories that are that good, right? Like there's mm-hmm. just this amazing aesthetic. But then whenever I look back, I think like last year, maybe I reread her first appearances in the 60s and they are so good. She's so funny and like compelling just immediately. And just this interesting character because, you know, she is a legacy character, but Mm -hmm. people very seldom reference her father, you know, unless it's like a part of her story. So I think it's very interesting how she's so popular and well-liked that she kind of overshadows the person whose legacy she's overtaking. Yeah, I think it helps that I think when she does show up, they use her well for the most mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Like she she doesn't have a ton of solo storytelling, um which I which I think kind of sucks honestly. She's such a great character, but when they do use Zatanna, I think they use her in a way that shows what a compelling character she is because her dad was overshadowed by the other DC characters, right? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. He existed, but he wasn't Batman, Superman. Like, he wasn't the, like, Aquaman. He wasn't these, like, larger-than-life superheroes. He was kind of like, also, we have, you know. And so Zatanna, I think, has the potential to be bigger than that, not just by virtue of this, but because of that a little bit, you know, where she can stand on her own with storytelling because she can kind of go toe-to-toe with the with the big guys. Yeah, and she does often. That was another thing I wanted to ask about was your choice of villain because Dr. Destiny obviously is a character that has a lot of history as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, so I sent DC several pitches. I sent them like, I think I sent them six short pitches of potential stories I could do. Um, And they liked this one, which is Zatanna getting stuck inside of a dream. And I'm a huge Sandman fan, like the Neil Gaiman Sandman series for Vertigo. Like, that's one of my favorite graphic novels series of all time. Dr. Destiny has, like, this really tragic, great through line in that series. In the very beginning. Is it even in the first couple? It's super early. very early. It's it's very very early. I was actually surprised they let me use it. I didn't I didn't know if they would say yes. Like I asked, I was like, could I? Could it be Doctor Destiny? Because he's just seemed for for the setting, which is what I came up with first. He seemed like the most natural enemy to have that that exist. Like to to be able to tell that story, it it felt like the most natural fit to me. Yeah, and it gave a lot of space, I think, for the artist to move around, right? Like mm-hmm. the whole dreamscape kind of thing. So was that kind of something that was intentional or did you find yourself being surprised by the art as it came back? Usually when I work on a project and I'm hired before the artist is, I ask if I can work with a person of color. I'm always like, can can it? Like, I would love if you guys tried to hire someone who's a person of color. That would be amazing. This was the first time I didn't have to ask they were just like, oh, you're going to be working with this artist, Lalit Sharma, which I've never worked with another um, 
Indian person before on a creative team because I just, no editor has put me in that position. Because when you were doing work for hire, I want to stress, like, we have no control. We don't get to say any, we can ask, but no one has to listen to us because it's not our characters. So this was actually a really wonderful experience and so I looked at, they they sent me his like Instagram and I looked at it and I was like, this is so cool. Like, I'm very excited about what he could do with it. And so I tried to keep that in mind when I, because the way a comic script works is you describe each panel and what is happening in each panel. And so I would describe like what I was seeing in my head, but with enough vagueness that Lalith would have time to, and space to like create the world that he saw. And so there were moments where I would have something broken up into like, eight panels and he would be able to distill it into six or seven, you know? And that was kind of really exciting um, to see like how these big splash pages and these big like blurred lines came to be on the page after writing it in a script. Like that was very cool and surprising to see. It's neat how many different ways you've worked with artists. You know, (laughs) like in a traditional comics setting, in these sort of hybrid settings, it's just really neat, and and it feels like what's come together is so... I can't imagine the script for Zatanna outside of the comic. I mean, I'm sure if I really tried, but it really comes <laughs> together so beautifully, and I think in all the examples we've mentioned, I wonder if you have any ideas about what the key is to make that work. You talked a little bit about the mechanics, but is there is there like a philosophical approach that's important as well as a writer working with comic artists? I think it's recognizing that it's collaborative. Like, I think sometimes there is a tendency to focus on the writer more so than the artist, but it is very much like it's all a collaboration and everybody cares about it, right? Like, I can tell whatever story I want, but if I don't have a great artist, if I don't have like a great editor or like people in production, marketing, sales, all those things, if all those people don't care as much as I do, like it won't matter because no one's going to read the book, right? So I think it's always super important to think about that when you're writing your script of like not being so controlling when you're working with someone who is just as passionate about this as you are and letting them have space to be as creative as they want to be because they know things you don't. Like, I'm not an artist. I can describe like kind of what something might look like in my head, but the artist might be able to look at that and be like, that's not going to get across what you want to get across. And let me show you how it can. So like, it's, it's just trying to remember that like, it doesn't have to be exactly what you're picturing because that might not be the best storytelling technique because you might not know what the best storytelling technique is. Yeah, we, we have a lot of writers on who talk about the importance of that collaboration and of having enough for the artist to work mm-hmm. off of that they're not yeah. just like, I don't know what the hell this means. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But then being willing to be part of, like you just said, that that creative team, really. I think for me, what's most important in scripting is making sure I'm getting the point across of what I want to get across. Like, like being clear about this is the most important thing and this is what needs to exist for the story to move forward. And then the artist can have room around that. I love that. Thinking about the, the narrative for this Zatanna story, I mean, Sarah talked about it a little bit, but I, I think it's such a, such a fun story because, I mean, dream stuff is fun. Stuff where you're stuck in dreams. I know some people are like, oh, dreams are hard. To blow. I'm like, whatever. I don't, I don't agree. I love them. I will take 10 more, please. <laughs> and so I thought that was so fun. And then there's this fun piece to the narrative, but then it's it's also dealing with some 
frankly, like abuse tactics, right? Mm-hmm. Like telling someone they don't have power to make them not have power. And to see Zatanna sort of grapple with that and and figure it out for herself, I think was really, really cool. Why did you want to write that narrative? And is there something more you're trying to say with it? I think, especially in the last year and a half, a lot of us have probably felt a similar feeling of that lack of control and that lack of power. Like I certainly know in my own life, something I'm struggling with over the past, like, you know, 16, 17 months is just not having control over anything because being at the mercy of the news and society and choices other people are making has kind of pushed me into this space of like, I can control what I can control. And so that's a little bit of what came out in this book of like, what do you do when someone is consistently taking control of your dreams? Like that's yours, right? That's something that should be sacred and and should hold like a safe and secure spot inside of you. And kind of wrenching that control back and seeing the fallacy of like, you don't have to listen to somebody when they tell you, you, you can't control this, right? So that I think I was working through some things <laughs> when writing this script. And it was a lot of just dealing with this idea of like not having agency in the real world. And what would that look like in the dream world where you should have full agency? Ooh, I like dreams as a place where we express our agency. And then if that is withheld, ooh, I like that. Definitely comes through. It's a, it's a really fun, quick one-shot read. I really love it. So I know that the Truth and Justice series is a little bit different. It's structured a little bit differently than than other comics. And I was wondering if you could just tell people a little bit about that, because I also know your issue is now available in Floppy. So uh, talk us talk us through that a little bit. Sure. It's funny, because I didn't know. Um, <laughs> like, when they emailed me, they were like, it's going to be a digital comic. And I was like, oh, cool, fine. Like, whoever reads it, reads it. Um, I actually didn't realize it was coming out in print until I saw the solicitation in, like, May. I got very excited. (laughs) Like, I had no idea. And then I was like, wait, what? (laughs) Is this this going to be printed? Um, Because basically what happens with these is they split it up into three chapters. So I wrote three 10-page chapters. And they came out digitally on Comixology, I think, in three-week successions in July. And then the print edition came out August 17th of the bound three chapters together. So it was like, it was an interesting process that I was not aware of (laughs) coming into it. I was just like, I just thought it was like a digital one shot that would go up. (laughs) So I I learned as it was happening. (laughs) I love that. That is so funny. Was there anything about working on Zatanna that you feel like you're going to take, or even just, I guess, like that comic format in general that you think you're going to take into your next projects? I think what's interesting about working on all these very, very different kinds of formats is pacing. Pacing is so important. And I know that there is something where people think that like, because I wrote one thing, I can write anything, but every different format has a different kind of storytelling. So pacing that works in a middle grade novel or pacing that works in a short story or in a prose novel or whatever or even in like a graphic novel, will not work in a 32-page weekly comic. And pacing that works for like 10 pages at a time that is being released in three-week successions will not work for a necessarily like traditional 
weekly comics. So it was, it's, it was just like interesting in having to adapt to the different kinds of pacing. Like each of those 10 pages had to have an arc and a story that would then be enough to build up to something better. So instead of your kind of traditional like curve, it was like a roller coaster of up and down with the hill getting bigger and bigger each time. I think that's something I'm going to bring to every project now as I go forward of like relearning how to pace a story depending upon the format in which I'm telling it. I do think pacing's one of the elements we sometimes as writers tend to underestimate, but it's so important for both like fulfilling reader expectation and for that weird, I always try and express this to writers because I do a fair amount of editing. I'm like, there's just this emotional payoff you get at the mm-hmm. end of a really well-paced book, comic, whatever it is. There's just this thing you feel where you're like, oh, fuck, at that, oh my God, what? <laughs> and that <laughs> feeling is all about pacing and about the payoff that you build from from the beginning. So when you think about pacing, obviously you're, you're talking about it, it depends on the genre and the type of book, but are there, are there elements of that that you think about generally that apply sort of across the board? I think when you are writing a story, it's funny because I don't think readers exist in the same way today as they did even like 15 years ago or even 10 years ago because of the way our attention spans have changed. So I think writers are adapting to that and how they tell their stories. So the pacing is much punchier where you're getting, and I'm talking about like mainstream storytelling. I'm not necessarily talking about like literary fiction. But I think when you are in far more commercial fiction, stories are tend to have like punchier pacing because you need to maintain that attention span in a way that you didn't have to like a decade, decade and a half ago. It's always shifting, right? Because again, if you are writing for a specific reader, that's that's who you're thinking about when you're writing. Like I'm working on a book that I am not allowed to say what it is, but it it is a a known character. And so it's kind of an action-y, upper-middle-grade, younger YA kind of story. And the way I had to structure it was literally doing digital post-it notes to make sure I was hitting exciting enough plot points in every chapter to maintain the flow of the story so that there was never, like, too much of a downturn in action. It, It was really interesting, like, how we're changing the way we take story in from, like, whether it's, like, TikTok where you're watching, like, now, if it, there's a three-minute TikTok that shows up on my on my stream, I'm like, oh, my God. I can't sit through three minutes. <laughs> I have places to be three God. minutes. <laughs> but, like, it's true. It's, like, something you have to contend with as someone who is creating story of how people are interacting with your story. Yeah, I think that that's true kind of across ages, too, because I notice now that a lot of genre fiction is going so hard on novellas Mm -hmm. lately, and that rules. Like, it's awesome. (laughs) I love, as somebody who listens to audiobooks, like, I love to go on a bike ride and, like, have read also half a book, you know? Like, (laughs) I enjoy it a lot. I love long books, too, but it's definitely a different vibe, and you're just kind of like, all right, I got to settle in, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think it maybe it is just kind of popping up really just across mediums and genres. Yeah, 100%. Like, I think you see it in TV. I think you see it in movies. I think you're seeing it in what is making, I mean, people are going to be like, ugh, art. But I, it's also in like, what is successful? Like, what are people accessing? What are they, what are they excited about engaging with, right? 
Yeah, I think so, too. And, like, we made a podcast about comics. Obviously, we think it's all art. You know? Like, this is clearly art. (laughs) We don't have space for none of that elitism in here. Everyone, Patreon is such an amazing platform. I like to subscribe to artists and support them and stuff, and often I get a bunch of free content. Guess what? We have a Patreon, and we give a bunch of free content. You could go to our website, patreon.com slash bitches on comics, which once again, you have to spell out B I T C E. No, that's H E S O N C O M I C S. Yeah, S E is the one that can do that part. Because um, I did a lot of takes to learn it. You did, you did. I remember sitting with you. It was like watching somebody train for the Olympics. And. <laughs> You've never gotten it wrong since. Like, you've never gotten it wrong since. So I, however, fucking lazy, just doing whatever I want in life, um, (laughs) don't have it together. Can't say the name of the Patreon you're supposed to go to, but do wish you'd go. Check it out. (laughs) You can join us for as little as $2 a month, as much as money as you got in the bank every month. Like, don't, like, not take care of yourself, but we would take it. We love this podcast. We want to do it forever. Help us out. Support us. Again, we're at patreon.com slash bitches on comics. You have to spell it out because if you don't, it won't pull up. You can't like go to patreon.com and be like, I'm going to look for some bitches because we will not show up because we do content that involves F-bombs. We have our intoxicated comics where we enjoy some sweet refreshments, <laughs> did, and then talk about comics. So Definitely talk about weed. There's a reason. Yeah, it's a den of vice over here. <laughs> <laughs> a den of vice. <laughs> Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. have other questions about the work or should we talk about like supernatural now (laughs) i did my little drum roll because we should talk about supernatural yeah (sighs) okay so um supernatural is the story of a pansexual demon hunter his angel boyfriend his vampire boyfriend and his demon boyfriend and his asexual little brother I'm sorry. I just like I go like feral. Like I, I, I just okay. Okay. <laughs> For the record, if you have not seen Supernatural, that is not how the show is presented to the world. No. That is that is how I experience the show. <laughs> Can I set the stage? Let me set the stage. Yes. Okay. In 2005, I was 21, and. It was like the height of the WB slash CW 
it was, you know, Gilmore Girls and Everwood and whatever. And found out this little show was starting with Dean from Gilmore Girls, Jared Padalecki, and Brady from Days of Our Lives, Jensen Ackles, because I watched Days of Our Lives the entire mm. summer. I was 14 years old because Jensen Ackles was on it. Oh, wow. I am also a soap opera fan, so I am here for this part of this conversation. <laughs> it's ostensibly a show about these brothers whose dad is missing, and they hunt monsters every week, and they're both really hot, and there's a lot of Dean played by Jensen Ackles on the show. Very confusing. Dean Winchester gets one manly tear once a week. It's great. There's, it's, it's set up for, like, that 2005 audience. There's like bootcut jeans, leather jackets. It's it's awesome. It keeps going <laughs> every year. It just it keeps going, and it the 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 stakes have to rise every year. So it's like monsters, then it's like demons, then it's like angels, and then it's God. You know, it just keeps leviathans, going. leviathans. It just every <laughs> every season has to escalate, and and they had planned it for five seasons, but it was it did so well. That even after, like, they, they circumvented the apocalypse at the end of the fifth season, they were just like, well, we have to keep going because this pulls in viewers. Like, people are, like, rabid over this show. It keeps going for 15 years. 15 seasons, we watch these brothers. We watch them fridge many women. <laughs> oh, if you are a woman, you're going to die. You're, you're not going to survive unless Probably you're, terribly, probably on screen. Yeah. Unless you're Jody, thank God. If they had killed oh, thank Jody, God for off, Jody, I would have <laughs> lost my mind. But so it keeps going. Poor now, fucking Jody. Oh my God, the thing she survives. <laughs> in in the fourth season, they introduced this angel, Castiel, played by Misha Collins, and he and Jensen Ackles have just the most intense, weird chemistry for a show that keeps telling us how straight Dean Winchester is but won't let a woman live long enough to be a love interest. And Castiel becomes Dean's most important relationship outside of his brother. There's like an entire arc that the fans refer to as the widower arc when Castiel dies because Dean acts like a widowed person. Like he acts like he lost the love of his life. Because he did. Because he did. <laughs> so the show, like 15 years, right? They, they try to kill Misha off like several times. The fans got so mad they kept bringing him back. They keep paralleling Dean and Castiel with every other romantic relationship on the show. In November 2020, which is already a shit, like just a shit show of a time for many other reasons in the real world, Supernatural is finally ending. I feel like, I feel like I'm bananas. Like, I feel like I'm describing like, <laughs> like I, it's, I don't even know, but okay. So Supernatural, <laughs> we're like, okay. <laughs> we're, we're 15 years in. There's three episodes left of this series ever, right? There's a lot of drama behind the scenes. In like spring of 2020, Jensen Ackles was like, I didn't like the ending. And everybody thought it was because he was homophobic. Many, not, not true. Fast forward past COVID, they do like, they have to like rig together like COVID protocols for, to be able to film this show, which means they can't do it exactly how they wanted, et cetera. So the 18th episode of 20 episodes of the final season airs on like November 5th, 2020. And in it, Castiel professes his love to Dean Winchester and immediately goes to super mega hell. Super mega hell. Immediately. It's a very touching scene. It's heartbreaking. Jensen Ackles and Misha Collins are very good at it. You see the like desperation and all of this stuff. There's two episodes left. 
they proceed to not reference him for two more episodes because they <laughs> cannot they cannot have Dean Winchester. Like they tried to have their cake and eat it too, essentially, in the American version, I should say. Because this keeps going. This show ended like 10 months ago and it's still going. Oh, the drama never dies with the Supernatural. The drama never dies Care, Women die, but not the drama. Not, <laughs> not the drama. So like this happens, people freak out because then I'm, I don't, do people care if we spoil this show? Spoil away. Okay. So Dean. If you care, stop listening. Yeah. So Dean, Dean's whole deal is that he is like, he feels like he doesn't deserve to be loved. He feels like he's going to die early. He's like, you know, that from the first episode, this is who he is, right? And so the show has been him having this journey to understanding he deserves to have a life and blah, 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 blah. They kill him off in the final episode. But I get, I get so angry. They kill him off. It's like you could watch the entire series. You could watch the first episode and the last episode. And it's like nothing happened in between because they <laughs> threw all the character development in the trash. They kill him off on a hunt. He goes to heaven. There's a single mention of Castiel where he kind of like half smiles and so everybody's really mad about how the show ended, right? Like, then the Spanish dub of the episode comes out where Cass professes his love. And in it, the Spanish voice actor has Dean reciprocate so that he says, I love you too, essentially. And so this might be the only ship that has gone canon in Spanish, but not in English. <laughs> <laughs> because in English, it's, unre- it's not reciprocated. And in Spanish, it is reciprocated. <laughs> I so, love this story. I have never actually seen this show. Oh and God. so I am getting like a front row seat and having a great time. And also, <laughs> I want to say that despite the fact that I have not seen this show, I have, however, gotten into a fight over how gay it is because I am coming to bat for that <laughs> without having ever seen it just because somebody said three words to me about it one time. And I was just like, yeah, that's gay shit. And then after that, <laughs> somebody he was just like, why do people have to make everything gay? And I was like, they're gay. Like, just so like <laughs> slamming my hand down on like the table and being like, absolutely not. Like, stop trying to gaslight me. You can't have a show. <laughs> you can't have a show that has no significant romantic relationship for the lead character after the fifth season. Because, and it's barely in the fifth season. Mm-hmm. Dean does not have a significant love interest. Outside of Castiel and Benny the Vampire from Purgatory. Well, and then when he he becomes a demon for a little while, he and what's his face, Crowley. the King of Hell, they kind of have like a hate yeah, thing it's going very on. Weird. Yeah. It's like all of Dean, which is not to say that you can't have platonic relationships. Like men can have platonic, loving relationships. One hundred percent. This show, straight up, like the eighth season, Dean and Cass are paralleled with Sam and some lady that he was mm-hmm. dating. The Kane and his wife parallel Dean and Cass. Like, they are paralleled with romantic... I, I, I sound like a conspiracy theorist. No, 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 Brittany. I will sound... I will sound like yes. a conspiracy theorist. Get ready for this. So, in season fucking one, they go to a haunted house. It's okay, a yes. house filled with dolls. And they go to check in, and they're like, one king bed, and they're like... Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. It's legal here. We didn't mean to assume. Like, my bad. And then Dean is like very sly. Like, what made you think I was gay? And I believe the woman says, she's like, I don't know. You just had like a look about you. And I 
fucking kid you not. That motherfucker looks off screen wistfully for just like a beat and is like, if only I could be gay. And from that moment on, I was like, this is the gayest it's, show I've ever yes. seen. It's mm-hmm. it's acting choices. It's it's Jackal. We call it Jackal's <laughs> acting choices. Jacking choices. And <laughs> there's this scene, like, I, my, I'm sure my sister is on the other side of this door and being like, what the fuck? Stop making us all sound so bananas. But we are. So there's a scene where Cass has been missing and he comes back from purgatory and he's like disheveled and, you know, like scruffy and all this stuff. And Dean's very happy to see him, but like very like, how did you get out? Whatever. He cleans up. He walks out of the bathroom back in like super hot Misha Collins style. And Sam kind of just looks at him. Jensen Ackles, and I don't understand this if you're not bi or pan or whatever, like clenches his fist really intensely, like shifts his entire body (laughs) and opens his mouth and then closes it again. (laughs) What? Like, there are so many moments where you're just like, you, this is what? This is, you are in love with him. Like, you, you guys are in love with Benny. Then the show recognizes it, right? Like, that's the most frustrating part. Mm. Is the show, like, there's a, after Benny, after Dean, like, is like, Benny, I actually can't help you anymore in this very sad way. The vampire. He has an episode where Felicia Day's character, Charlie, shows up. And Felicia Day, like, Charlie is like, oh, are you going through a breakup too? And that's how the show freezes it. Yep. Like, the show knows. There's a scene in the eighth season where Dean, like, Cass is beating the shit out of Dean because reasons. And (laughs) Dean's, like, on his knees in front of him, like, bloodied and battered. And Cass, like is gripping his hand in one and has his like fist in and like oh, like fist about to beat him in another and Dean says we're family we need you and then he pauses and says i need you the the scripted line is i love you i have chills like, all over my body like, it was such the, a gay moment I, it was just like let so, them kiss that's me like so in my house gay. alone I go like ah, uh, and I so, too will fight to the death too because. Just, but the thing is, is, like it keeps going, right? Like it just keeps going. <laughs> it's like if you uh, didn't want us to think the show was queer, you could have stopped. You could have stopped at any point, that. but you wouldn't. And every time a female, like a woman, a romance with a woman is written in, she dies terribly or is broken up with horribly. One or the other, usually one than the other, mm-hmm. and it's like okay. I get it. Women suck. I got the message. I got it loud and clear that women are trash. Noted. But also, real gay. <laughs> real gay. And so, okay, so the show ends, right? Jensen Ackles doesn't say a word about it socially, like uh, like on social, I mean, after the 18th episode, like after Cassiel dies. He like says nothing. He might retweet a few things, but he doesn't say shit. He and Misha Collins are not in the like goodbye video that, the, the supernatural account post, like Jared Padalecki is like, it's all this like weird shit that's like very like conspiracy theory where you're like, oh, they didn't show up here and they didn't say this, but it it adds up. Then in like, was it March? No, it wasn't that long ago. Maybe it was May. Jensen Ackles is like, P.S. My production company bought the rights to Supernatural and we're doing a prequel. <laughs> what? And the best fucking part is Jared like, Padalecki Jared is like, <laughs> This is the first I'm hearing of this on Twitter. On Twitter. Oh my god! The drama and so, never dies. And, and it's the sh- the head writer is Robbie Thompson, who wrote like the gayest episodes of Supernatural. 
<laughs> so we're like, like he wrote, he wrote the "I love you," the Jensen, the the Dean, "I love you," that changed to "I need you." Like he is, he he gets that relationship, and so <laughs> now everyone's like, first of all, I'm for, I'm mad it's a prequel because I I hate John Winchester and I don't want to watch a show about him, but I will. But it's <laughs> it's just like the show just like never fucking ends, and it just. I, I just, it just keeps going and I watch it. I'm like, really, I'm in my third rewatch of the pandemic. Oh my God. <laughs> because I'm watching it with my friend Alice on like Friday nights, who is like, it's very fun because she's, she also had never seen it, but she got into it because of all the drama in the fandom. <laughs> I got into it this year. I got a very bad cold and I finished a show I was watching that there was only one season of at that point, And I was devastated, devastated. I was like, I need a show that just doesn't end. And I had, yeah. Netflix Welcome. had been like, Netflix was like, bitch, you're going to love Supernatural. And I was like, you're wrong. I don't need any boy Buffy up in my life. Oh. Oh. I am good. But and you love I, it, don't you? <laughs> I, what I refer to as hate watching it. And at some point it switched from hate watching to love watching. And I, I, yeah, no, I mean, I, I am Dean. Uh, I'm just like yes. the actually pansexual one. Yes. But like, it is so weird watching some of the things he does. I'm like, well, did that when I was 14. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, he's like 30 <laughs> doing it. But he's, he's coming to terms with it. They do that in that last season. They do that fucking episode with Christian Kane where he's like, like the, the guy who owns the bar that's like his friend from old times and Dean's going through a hard time. And so he like goes to this bar and meets his friend. And they do like a, they sing to the crowd. Like they do a performance and the lighting is like bisexual lighting. <laughs> <laughs> what a show. I can't, it's just, I, it makes me, oh, I like watch it and I'm like, I fucking hate this show, but I love it so much, but I hate it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's so um, My partner and I just walk around the house and go, Sam! Sam! Oh, yeah, Sam! That's, a big, that's a big one in, in our household. Dude! Sam! Dude! Sam! <laughs> Sam! <laughs> Sam! <laughs> oh, wow. You know, this isn't where I thought this interview would go. Before, I mean, obviously, before we started, we did discuss it. Uh, and I couldn't be happier. <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad that this is how I learned everything about Supernatural that I needed to know in order to hold up arguments about how gay it is. Oh, you're welcome. There's stuff we haven't even told you. Oh, no. There's this whole scene where Dean's and like, he's like in a confessional. Oh, whoa. Okay, he's like, already. There are, he's like, there are, there are people, feelings I wish I had been able to experience. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Oh my god! I fucking hate this show. <laughs> I can't wait to watch it on Friday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. My my partner would walk in and be like, "What is happening?" And I'm like, "You know what? Honestly, don't ask. It's <laughs> like you said before. Reasons. He's beating reasons. him for reasons. reasons. I I can't even like. I'd have to explain thirteen things that you god, don't need to know Cass to lead like, into I fell it for you." Uh, I'm doing all this for you. Putting uh, 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 <laughs> my head down on my desk. I loved that. This this entire conversation <laughs> is very fun for me. Good. <laughs> I hope wow. People listening are like, oh my god, can you shut the fuck up about supernatural? No. Oh, I. <laughs> this is gonna be something that I directly, like, passive aggressively send right to a person <laughs> to be like. <laughs> 
You think you know this show that you watched for 15 seasons? <laughs> Let me tell you. Suck Let it. Let me tell you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I just want to like, I'm always like, if maybe if I show people that episode, they'll believe me. The haunted <laughs> dolls. And I'm like, you know what? No. People believe what they want. <laughs> That's true. I mean, I can only compare it to being a kid and loving Xena so much and being like, they're married. And people being like, they are fucking not. Like, but they <laughs> are, though. Like, but they take baths together. They are. Um, <laughs> I don't really take baths with my friends. No. I mean, like, I love friends. <laughs> but seldom do I take sensual baths with them. I don't know. Maybe I like I've that been you living my life the wrong... <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, well, I was like thinking back and being like, well, I can't say never. <laughs> well, but seldom. That's a story for bitches on comics after day. dark. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, a thank you so much for sharing so many beautiful things about the works that you've worked on and about, you know, reaching different kinds of readers and and so many beautiful things. I'm going to, listening back to this, I'm going to have so many more notes to add for myself and think about as a, a writer myself. So thank you for that. And and um, I don't know if either of you have seen any Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but there is a a very popular meme, which is uh, Captain Holt screaming, Vindication! <laughs> and that is exactly how I feel about Supernatural right now. Good. <laughs> Go yeah. on. Same here, actually. Because <laughs> the second somebody tried to argue against it, I was like, you are wrong. They're in love. Whatever we're talking about. If you're about. arguing against it, it's because you don't want to see it. Versus if you're arguing for it, it's because you have media literacy. That's me. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> Shots yes, are fired. Yes, yes, yes. All right. So we live yes. for I'm sorry. I don't mean it. It was a joke. Don't be mad. <laughs> You're so different than us. We're like, fuck you. If you don't like yeah. it, you're like, don't be mad. Oh, don't be mad. Just stay out of my mentions. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's really the yeah, we can all we agree can, to we that. We can disagree. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so what do you have on the horizon? I'm in an anthology. Uh, coming out in just two weeks, actually, called The Battle of the Bands. It is YA, and every story takes place on the night of the Battle of the Bands. My story is about the kids who sell merch, and it's called Merch to Do About Nothing. And I'm pretty excited <laughs> about it. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Brilliant. Um, so that comes out September 6th, I think. And then the third Avengers Assembly book comes out in... Uh, January, and it's called Exchange Students 101 because guess what? They're going to go hang out at Xavier's for a little while. What? Oh my God. <laughs> I'm so excited. Delightful. Wait, are they going to Krakoa? No, it's, it's, uh, we had a long conversation about it actually because I was like, <laughs> I don't know what the current continuity says. And they were like, just mm -hmm. put it wherever you want. So I, it's in like, 90s Xavier School for Gifted mm -hmm. Students. So like, this is what I remember. This are, yeah. Extremely smart. I'm like, this that is, is a world be. that I don't think any of us knows where it's going. <laughs> like, I'm, I was like, I don't want to... I was like, I know this person's dead, because, but can I use them? And they're like, yes, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> 
resurrecting <laughs> characters. Like, whatever. Queering supernatural. <laughs> changing the face of pop culture. Ah, that's what I do. Beautiful. But, hey, can I make it gay? Let's do it. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah, I'm like, they should let you write the supernatural comic. Like, that's yeah, what I want to see. It would just be Destiel fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> Give the people what they want. Ellie, this is how I retcon cast going to Super Mega Hell. <laughs> the empty mist. It was all a test. It was a test. It's not real. Oh, oh yeah. God. <laughs> Do you want to share like a website or anything where people can yes. learn more about your work? I would. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you can go to preetichibber.com, uh, P-R-E-E-T-I-C-H-H-I-B-B-E-R, and you can find my books there. If you are interested in buying them, you can buy them from uh, independent bookstores or bookshop.org would be awesome. Um, and if anybody is a Wheel of Time fan, I have a podcast called Tar Valen or Bust, where my buddy Jen Northington and I are rereading all of the books in advance of the television show that's going to drop this fall. And it's super fun. Amazing. And where can people learn more about your podcast? Also at PreetheTripper.com. There is a tab for podcasts because my sister was very nice and built me a very fancy website. Nice, mm. nice. And we will link to the website in the show notes. So if you didn't have your pen out, don't worry. We will make sure that you can just click on over to this episode and you'll be able to click there and go learn more about our dear friend. This was so nice. This was yeah, so nice. thank you. <laughs> thank you. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> I just sat here and cackled about De- Dean's DL. I wasn't doing shit. Uh, Destiel. Destiel, that's right. It's Destiel. <laughs> or Dean Cass. Dean. Either or. I like, I like Destiel better. I do too. It, it rolls off the tongue nicely. It does. I can't remember it apparently, but it does <laughs> roll off the tongue nicely. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being here today. Absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you listeners for joining us. Uh, make sure you go, you know, retweet our tweets and rate and review and go buy all of the books and yay, we love you. We're a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So (laughs) we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. 
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.